It says, our rabbis taught that a person is obligated to do five things for his son. Number one, a father is obligated to circumcise his son to pass on the sign of the uh, Abrahamic covenant. A father is obligated to redeem his son if he is the firstborn, according to Torah. Number three, a father is obligated to teach his son Torah and mitzvot, as it says in Deuteronomy chapter 11, 19, teach them to your children. Number four, a father is obligated to marry his son to a woman, and God told mankind, be fruitful and multiply. And number five, a father is obligated to his son in the following ways, to give him food and drink, bathe him, to give him ointments, and to clothe him, and give him possessions. So the last thing listed there is the most obvious thing that we do, you know, something that seems to be totally, you know, just pre-understood. But all the things obligated to the son are not only just to procreate, raise children, but to teach them, continue the faith that Abraham gave you, continue the faith that we have in Yeshua as well. You know, we see this idea of has so many small connotations to it, you know, it's, it's more than we normally think about. Just like the words of the Master in John 15, 8, he says, In this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So if you bear much fruit, you're fruitful and multiply. You know, this implies that we are bearing fruit for the kingdom, not only uh, having actual children. So in this week's Torah portion, we read in Baiki that Yosef and Yaakov died, right? And in next week's Torah portion, we see that all the rest of the patriarchs died, and everybody that came into Egypt with Yaakov. So we read in Shemot, Exodus chapter 1, verse 26, 6 and 7. Then Joseph died, as did all his brothers and all that generation. Yet B'nai Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew extremely numerous. So, you know, just on the, when we read this in English over the basic level here, we say, well, they're continuing on in Peru or Abu, they're continuing on. It says they were fruitful, increased abundantly, multiplied and grew extremely numerous. But in Hebrew, it doesn't say that they're doing Peru or Abu anymore. Now, this time it says Peru Vaishratsu. And the word sharats means to swarm or to team or to wriggle. It's literally a word used for uh, unclean insects, unkosher insects and bugs, right? And so there's a uh, 14th to 15th century Italian rabbi, and I brought in some of his commentary here. He says, after the last of the original migrant, migrants had died, their whole lifestyle became more like that of creeping insects, creatures headed for destruction. This is why, when, although there is no question about the 80-year reign of Joseph and his legislation saving Egypt from the famine, as well as his legislation to acquire all Egyptian land and make the people Pharaoh's tenants, it did not occur to anyone to associate the Hebrews of this time with the family of Joseph, who had been so highly esteemed. The idea that the present-day Hebrews deserve special consideration on account of their illustrious forebears did not occur to anyone observing the way these Hebrews behaved. Right, so we see that while, you know, Yosef and the patriarchs were alive, Yaakov was alive, the light was there. They were doing Peru Orbu, they were bearing fruit for the kingdom. They still had the lofty ideas of building the kingdom. But as soon as the patriarchs died, it, it seemed, you know, as if that spiritual light started to diminish. You know, and they slowly came into this place of restriction in its own. So I want to go back, there's another concept I see here in the same verse of Ayagash in Breshit 47, 27. I'm going to read it again. It says, Meanwhile Israel settled 
or dwelt in the land of Egypt. In the land of Goshen, they acquired property in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. So the second thing you see here is it says Israel settled, right? Or they dwelt in the land of Egypt, saying that they were, you know, basically putting down roots in the land. And our rabbis say something about that as well. They say everywhere that it is stated, and he dwelt, it is an expression of pain and impending calamity. As it says in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1, And Israel dwelt in Shittim, and the people began to commit harlotry with the daughters of Moab. That's the story of Balak and Belianina. And then in Brashid chapter 37, verse 1, as it is stated, And Jacob dwelt in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. And it is stated thereafter, one verse later, And Joseph brought the evil report of them to his father. And soon after we know Joseph was sold into slavery, Yaakov thought he was dead. Brashid chapter 47, verse 27, just like we just read, it says, And Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And as it is stated two verses later, and the time drew near that Israel was to die. As it is stated, 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 5, And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And as it is stated thereafter, And the Lord raised up an adversary to Solomon. Hadad the Edomite, he was of the kings of the seed of Edom. So we see in all those instances that every time Israel decided to settle down, to just dwell, become complacent, something bad soon, soon arose. You know, we see that, that that's, we're watching this come up now. You know, as we go into next week's Torah portion, they're already dwelling, they're putting down roots in the land. This reminds me of a story that I heard not uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And they, it's a, a, a Jewish rabbi is walking home from the store one night. And he hears some people partying and, you know, having a good time and cutting up and making merry. And he hears one of his friend's voices. So he decides, well, I'll go over there and see my companion and see how he's doing. So he goes and knocks on the door. His companion opens the door. He's like, oh, friend, you know, come in. Come enjoy the time with us. And he walks in. As soon as his friend shuts the door, it's completely dark in the room. And the rabbi asked him, he said, why is it completely dark in the room? And he said, well, we had some candles lit. But as soon as they went out, you know, we didn't have any more to light. So we just dwelt in the darkness here. You know, if you just blink your eyes a little bit, you'll get used to it. And you'll be able to deal with it. You know? And the rabbi hung his head down in shame, you know, and he immediately just started to weep. And his companion asked, friend, why are you weeping? What's wrong? And he said, this is our story. <coughs> you know, this is our story. So just like the pious man's companions who chose to dwell in darkness, once the patriarchs died, you know, once all those who came into Israel when Jacob died, all the hope of Hashem had seemed to be but lost. You know, the light was gone for them in Mitzrayim. And they came to a spiritual decline, right? The spiritual restriction, the spiritual slavery there in Mitzrayim. So the word Mitzrayim actually is a plural form of the word Matsur, which actually means to hem in or to restrict or confine. You know, and after being in this land of restriction for such a long time with other spiritual leaders, you know, it's kind of like being here today without rabbi. You know, they, they felt succumb, they felt prey to the restrictions that were upon them. You know, they all but seemed to lose that hope and they became complacent and they dwelt in that darkness. In Shemot, Exodus chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, we see this bitter slavery. You know, this began to be put on an actual physical slavery, not just spiritual slavery anymore. They worked them harshly and made their lives bitter with hard labor, with mortar and brick, doing all sorts of work in the fields. 
and all their labors they worked them with cruelty. So them forgetting about Hashem's ways led, it started with the spiritual restriction, and then it soon led into very physical restriction and pain and suffering for them, you know, their complacency and their turning their backs on God. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 32 and 33 says, For the backsliding of the naive will kill them, and the complacency of fools will destroy them. But whoever pays attention to me will live securely and be free from the fear of evil. So likewise, for us, we find ourselves falling prey to these same situations every day. We live in Mitzrayim still today. Total spiritual restriction. Some days we feel stronger than others. But you know, other days, we have bad days, and it's pretty easy for us to fall into that, into that darkness. And then we become complacent. We settle in the darkness. We say, well, you just run your eyes a little bit and you get used to it. You know, and we find ourselves doing this all the time. You know, and especially in this day and age when we're used to technology, everything's right there at the tip of our fingers. We expect immediate reaction and immediate answers for all of our questions. And sometimes, why does it take so long for God to respond to us? You know? And, but we can't be fooled in all this. We can't be fooled in the darkness, right? You know, and a lot of us don't see it because we're not in a physical slavery, but just because we don't see the chains doesn't mean they're not there. You know? That's a very true. You know, all of our worries, any of our worries, our bad habits, our bad thoughts, you know, our fears, right? If we have anger issues, purity issues, all these, all these different things, you know? Do we spend more time feeding our bellies than we do feeding our spirits in God's Word, you know? Shaul or Paul the Apostle, he says in Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he also shall reap. For the one who sows in the flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows in the Ruach will reap from the Ruach eternal life. We all got to figure out how to get out of the darkness. Right? And the only way is to depend on God. Sometimes these answers aren't going to be as quick as we want them to. You know? But we have to depend on the Spirit. We have to slow down. And really wait to hear from the Lord. In John chapter 3 verse 8. It says the wind blows where it wishes. And you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from. Or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. He compares those born of the spirit to the wind. Right? The people born of the spirit don't dwell. They're not complacent. They don't settle down. The wind can't be contained. You know it's not something that is willing to settle. And make roots somewhere. And just stay there you know. It's, it's uncontainable. In Hebrews chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, we read about Abraham of Eno, our father. It says, By faith he migrated to the land of promise, as if it were foreign, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was waiting for the city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So he was in the land of promise that God had promised personally to him. He settled there as a foreigner. He lived in tents. He wasn't going to be enslaved by the world. There's, there was, Abraham was not going to do that. With the children of the promise living in tents, would he make a house? Was not willing to settle down until he saw the fullness of God's promises to him. Right? Abraham was not willing to become a slave to the world and the restrictions of the world. Rob Scholl says in Romans 6, verse 16, he says, Do you not know that whatever you yield yourself as slaves for obedience... You are slaves to what you obey, whether to sin resulting in death or to obedience resulting in righteousness. And the Master brings it down in John chapter 8, verse 34 and 35. 
Amen, amen, I tell you, everyone who, is a, who sins is a slave to sin. Now the slave does not remain in the household forever. You know, in these last days, we can't afford to dwell. We can't afford to be complacent. We can't afford to be a slave to our physicality. We need to be slaves to God and slaves in His Spirit. You know, and, and the Master again brings us another hard warning here in Luke chapter 12, verses 42 to 46, talking about anybody that wants to get comfortable, anybody that wants to be complacent. You know, anybody that says, oh, it's been a, it's been a while, he says, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the Master will put in charge of His servants to give them their food portion at the proper time? Blessed is the servant whose master finds him so doing when he comes. Truly I tell you, his master will put him in charge of all his possessions. But, here's the but. If the servant says in his heart, my master is taking a long time to come. It's been a long time. You know, many people do that. And we, you know, and he, and he begins to beat the slave boys and girls and he begins to eat and drink and get drunk. They will come complacent and give in to the flesh. The master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he does not know, and he will cut him in two and assign him a place with the unfaithful. That's some pretty harsh and heavy words from the master himself. You know, so we can't become complacent. We can't become like we see Israel doing in this week's portion and just dwelling in the land. We can't do that. We can't be apathetic. Is really the word. We cannot do that anymore. It's the end of days. Yeshua says the first will be last and the last will be first. We're here in the end of days and we need to always, I mean everything we do, even from the simplest things to the biggest things, be ready. And you know, in all these things, none of us are innocent. You know, we all find ourselves being apathetic, complacent, dwelling in the darkness, you know, at times. And we just don't know how to get out of them. Like I said, we like that immediately, immediate reaction. The internet, cell phones, all these things. And we find ourselves not being able to escape this darkness of our physicality. But in this week's Torah portion, I see a, a greater concept than both of these, right? We see in Breshi uh, chapter 48, verse 1 and 2, right there, near the beginning of the portion. It says, After all these things, someone told Yosef, Behold, your father is sick. So he took his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, with him. Then someone told Jacob, saying, Behold, your son Joseph has come. So Yaakov's getting sick, he's about to pass away, he was supposed to bring Ephraim and Manasseh to receive the blessing from him, you know. And so he brings him in to talk to his father, his father gives him the story, you know, about everything that happened and what the Lord's done for him and everything. And then on down in uh, verse 8, I don't know if I've ever noticed this before, but this year I noticed this. It says, Then Israel saw Joseph's sons, and he said, Who are these? At the beginning of the Torah portion, we see that, you know, Yaakov's lived in Israel for 17 years. You know, he says in verse 5, he says, So now your two sons were born to you in the land of Egypt. Before I came to you in Egypt, they are mine. He knows that they're with him. He knows he's known them for 17 years. How does he all of a sudden see? The Torah tells us he sees Ephraim and Manasseh. He says, who are these? I mean, literally, imagine if you took your grandkids to your dad's house. You know, he's known them all their life. These kids are like 20 years old. I don't know, who are these guys? Get them out of here, you know? Like, that's such an odd, such an odd situation there. And likewise, we see where, let's see. Oh, two verses later, it says, Now Israel's eyes had grown heavy with old age. He could not see. 
So why did the Torah tell us that he saw them and didn't recognize them? If he was already blind, then how did he see them, right? So in the Chumash, that has the Rashi commentary, Rashi brings it down on, uh, and Israel saw Joseph's sons, he says, he wished to bless them, but the Shekinah, or the Divine Presence, the Ruach HaKodesh, had departed from him, because he saw that from Ephraim would be born the wicked king Jeroboam. Jeroboam literally made two more golden calves and separated Israel, you know, and Judah, and Ahab, and from Manasseh, Jacob, and his sons. And on the question, he says, who are these? He says, who come and are unfitted for a blessing. It's pretty hardcore. So regardless of whether these comments that Rashi bring down are 100% true or not, you know, it gives us some insight. And according to Rashi, Yaakov was hesitant to bless Ephraim and Manasseh because he had had a vision of their future offspring through the Ruach HaKodesh. You know, but then something awesome happens, right? In verse 9, we see something beautiful. Joseph intercedes on behalf of his children. He says in the beginning of verse 9, he says, They are my sons whom God has given me here. Mm-hmm. Right? So if Rashi's commentary is correct, we see that Yaakov really had a, mil- you know, a million and one reasons not to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. But by the intercession of Yosef, he decided to give him the blessing anyways. Likewise, Rabbi's been talking about all the comparisons and the foreshadowing of Yosef being, you know, Messiah, Messiah ben Yosef. You know? And after after Yosef interceding for him in the second part, he says, then, then he said, please bring them to me so I may bless them. And we know likewise Yeshua does this for us and intercedes for us so that we can receive the greatest blessing of the Father, receive the entirety of the potential of what he has for his creation. He's bestowed it upon us in the blessing of Yeshua, right? Amen. So really, well, this leads us to a question. What is a blessing? Right, we say that all the time. What is a blessing, right? So in Hasidic teaching, it explains that the word bracha, or blessing, literally means to draw something down. Right? And everything in life, its potential, comes from the ultimate source, which is Hashem Himself. And through this greatest blessing given to mankind, Yeshua's life, His death, His burial, His resurrection, we have received the ultimate potential. Right? And we, we, all we have to do now is just, we have to ask the question, are we going to do something with this? Are we going to work to actualize the potential that God has given us? The ultimate potential for His creation. Come back. The first command given to man, Peru or to build the kingdom of God. Are we going to do this? Uh, may God grant us here all the ability, the wisdom, and the will to actualize the potential bestowed upon us through His Son. And may Mashiach come soon in our, in our days. Amen. Avinu Shabbat our Father in heaven. We love you. We adore you. We thank you, Father. We ask that you would just help us here to actualize your will in this world, Father. You have bestowed such great potential upon each and every one of us. And now all we 